Hi, this is uh, Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. <laughs> this is Season 1, Episode 15. I am cracking a cold root beer excess. Mm. Just back from a journey around the world, and um, I thought uh, what I like to call a hot lap around the globe, and uh, I thought I'd kind of share the journey that I was just on for this episode, because sometimes I think people wonder what I do. Uh, sometimes I wonder what I do for a living, and this last uh, three weeks or so was was pretty fun. In fact, if you were listening, you you probably heard the interview I did with Miguel Aguado Jr. when we were in Madrid at the beginning of that journey. Um, so uh, first of all, and I wanted to talk about, by the way, some of the people I've met that I didn't get a chance to interview, and I was just I was moving really quickly, and I just I, I'm making mental notes about people I'm going to schedule to get back with because uh, hopefully. Um, you'll be as impressed as I was with <laughs> with some of these people that I got to meet in my in my uh, movements around the world. Um, a quick reminder: the Kick Aspirational Podcast is all about breaking through barriers in our lives, choosing ourselves, and uh, you know, and creating the life that we want to live. Um, I like to say it's creating the world we want to live in rather than the one that somebody else is offering us. So it's all about choosing ourselves and creating our own opportunities. Um, I started this podcast because literally thousands of people asked me how. How I did it, how my partners and I built, um, you know, the excess brand, and what I'm trying to do with this isn't really answer the specific the specifics of that so much as, you know, answer what I think the real question is, which is how can how can somebody else create the life they want to live, which I think is what we're all trying to work on, hopefully. Um, so this episode, you know, um, also is trying to answer a question I got from a friend of mine who's a doctor in Arizona, uh, Eric Nelson, Eric. Cheers to you. Um, who was a casual acquaintance from college? He and I uh, were, were on the same floor. I think freshman or sophomore sophomore year, I think. And uh, he's become a good friend via social. I, we didn't we weren't really close at all in college, uh, but on social media we became close. He's started visiting. You know, he's visited Laguna a few times. We've gone stand up paddling and body surfing together. Um, and it's just it's kind of interesting how I think social media, if you use it correctly, can really enhance relationships and. Um, and reconnect you or connect you with people that you wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm very happy to, to have met and, and can reconnect with Eric. But one of the things he asked me when we were doing the podcast interview with uh, Tony and Francis was, he goes, I love the podcast. It's really good. But what do they do? <laughs> we didn't get into a lot of specifics um, just because of the nature of that podcast. And uh, you know, I apologize for that. And some of them we can get more, a lot more specific and talk about brands and and specifics of what they do sometimes it's more going to be uh it's going to be more connected to values and it'll be might be a little bit more generic so so stick with us on that i'll, I'll try and get more specific when i can this one will be very specific about kind of exactly what i do so um if you're interested in that buckle in if you're not you don't have to listen to it but uh so this episode um it really answers that question. And, and maybe what I can walk through on my last trip around the world in the last few weeks is some of the highlights, like who I've been meeting, um, you know, inside and outside the excess work I do, why I think it's important to keep associating at a really high level uh, with people who are actively attempting to break through barriers um, in their own lives, are progressing, uh, you know, in their lives. And some of these people are have arrived. Some of these people are working to get there. Um, I'm going to talk about my my two sons a little bit because I was with them, and they're certainly you know in the middle of the struggle at the beginning of their journey in, in a lot of ways. Um, 
So, uh, but I think, you know, the idea is, is being around people who can't stop moving forward in life. So Sarah and I, my wife and I, uh, went to Valencia at the beginning of this trip, uh, kind of the third week in September. We took off for Valencia for um, one of the two big global events that we do with Excess around the world. Um, one is the three-on-three basketball tournament in May in Japan. Uh, I think next year it'll be in the fall. The other big one we do every year is the last regatta for the 52 Super Series uh, sailboat race. Um, and this, this year, um, one of my, uh, business partners and a lot of different deals that I do and investments that I do direct investments, um, and, and also a former board member and investor in excess, Glenn Rogers and his wife, Iris Bourne, uh, joined us because they hadn't been to a 52 super series race and Glenn and Iris love sailing. They actually owned a sailboat, sailed it uh, across the Atlantic and around the med, uh, for quite a while. And um, anyway, so they wanted to come with us and actually see what these races are about. Um, if you haven't heard, I think I've described them a couple times. The 52 Super Series is basically the height of monohull uh, sailboat racing. Um, so meaning you're not on some, some kind of fixed-wing catamaran like you may have seen in you know one of the last two America's Cup races. Fixed-wing means it's not a sail. It's literally like a vertical wing. Um, and catamaran means it's two two hulls rather than just one hull. Monohull is one hull. By the way, the next America's Cup will be monohull racing again because people who are real sailors get tired um, of the... Um, of the catamaran racing, which isn't, it's just different. It's not the same thing, uh, as kind of what the, the height of competitive sailing is, is all about. So, um, anyways, the 50, the 52 super series is pretty cool because it attracts like the best racers, the best sailboat racers in the world. People who've all competed and or won America's cups have won gold medals and been, been Olympians. Um, it's, it's 11 boats. It's, uh, it's just, it's really, really, uh, talented individuals. You can find their website, 52, 52, just like the number 52 super series.com. Uh, it's, it's the events are managed by an incredible team, uh, from Jack Aranda marketing in Valencia, the, uh, German, the German, uh, Spanish brothers, <laughs> Lars and Sven Bocking, hilarious, hardworking and super fun, super talented team. And, and, and the, and the people that work with them to make the 52 super series come together. But we have a ton of fun. They put all of our events together, make sure that our VIPs are taken really well, uh, taken care of really well, but also do a lot of stuff around the 52 Super Series itself. In fact, um, this year the 52 Super Series was featured in a segment that uh, CNN does called Main Sale all throughout the month of October. And the cool thing was the excess, our brand, was on the boom, on the you know the vertical bar that's just above the deck uh, in, a, in a big uh, gradient yellow orange and red box. So it was really visible. And you've got like the Prada boat, you've got quantum racing, you've got a platoon, you've got, you've got all these amazing boats, like the Grand Prix of monohull racing and excess was right in the middle of it. So we're really proud of that. And, um, and it's been a, it's been a great series of events, but, um, you know, what, what, uh, what, what, what's funny is a few years ago, um, Doug DeVos, who's the president of Amway and one of the co-founders of the 52 Super Series and the owner of Quantum Sales, which sponsors the Quantum Racing Team, uh, approached me and he said, hey, David, would, um, you know, would Excess be interested in sponsoring the 52 Super Series? Which, you know, obviously, <laughs> he's kind of like, he's the president of the company, like, how do you say no, right? But, but, but he did it in a way that was zero pressure. And he was like, look, would you want to come out and race with us in Mallorca? Um, I, I grew up racing scows, which are these um, 
monohull sailboats that have no keel, so there's no you know uh, heavy. They're they're very light, and uh, a keel is is the kind of the big thin in the bottom of the boat that that allows it to go into the wind. But um, so these boats I grew up racing had no keel. They had sideboards and they have these massive mainsails. They go really fast and they're pretty finicky. They they're very technical. Um, I haven't raced in a long time. I raced offshore for a little bit too. But anyways, when he asked me if I wanted to race on these boats, I was like, are you joking? It's like asking someone who used to, you know, race carts if they want to come to the Formula One Grand Prix. You know, it's just, it's a, it's like, yeah, it'd be amazing. So I got to be on the boat for a couple, um, a couple races with them. And, uh, you know, their team is, it's like watching a Swiss clock. I mean, it's so technical. Their crews know exactly what they're doing. Um, the, the tactics, the strategy, it's just, it's, it's another level. It's a totally different game. It was really amazing to be a part of. And so I enjoyed it. And we're, of course, in Mallorca, Spain, which is an island and, you know, in the Mediterranean in the summer. And it's, it's what they call champagne sailing. It's, it's, you know, perfect conditions. The winds come up every afternoon. They blow, you know, somewhere between probably 15 and, and 20 knots, which is the perfect amount of wind for a boat like that. And, um, yeah, it's just gorgeous, you know, exotic location, beautiful, beautiful boats. It's just everything there that we look for, for an excess branded experience. And, and I said to Doug at the end of this, you know, I said, Hey, look, you know, this is really great. I love it. Um, but you know, when I have to make a decision about spending money with the excess brand and getting a return on investment, our business, you know, which is all about, it's all, it's a direct selling company. We don't really do marketing per se. I mean, we do marketing, but it's, you know, we're, we're not a marketing company. We're not like a, a typical consumer uh, packaged goods company um, that you see on a store shelf. Um, we don't sell off shelves. We only sell through our distributor partners. And so, you know, brand awareness, which is really important. If think about it this way, I'll just kind of walk you through this really quickly. If you're, um, if you're a brand like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, and you want to reach a consumer, there's a big assumption that your whole marketing starts with, which is a consumer will be standing in front of a shelf looking at, a, a, you know, in their brain, they'll say, I need to buy soda. Uh, they'll stand in front of a shelf and they'll see a series of soda brands, Coke, Pepsi, Sprite, whatever, you know, um, root, the, the root beer, whatever, pick your favorite flavor of soda, but they're all, they're all there at the grocery store. And what brand awareness does is, is, the brand like Coke or Pepsi wants to cement in your head and have an emotional relationship with you so that when you're standing in front of that shelf, you're like, oh, you know what? I always buy Coke. I'm a Coke person or I'm a Pepsi person. I'm part of a new generation, you know, whatever it is that, that connects you to those brands. And it's because of an experience that those brands deliver over time that's repeated, that's basically creates a relationship. And so when you're standing on in, in front of those brands, because of brand awareness, because of your, you know, because of the use you've had over the years and the experiences you've had, and because of the impressions that have been made through advertising, psychologically, you're going to pick up very consistently the same brand that you, that you always do, unless there is some huge problem with that brand or some incredible breakthrough by an emerging brand. But th- that is very, very hard and very expensive to do on a store shelf. When we created Excess, one of the reasons I liked Amway as a, as a partner, particularly for our distribution at that time, was because I didn't have to break through those barriers and I didn't have to fight over getting on those shelves, which, by the way, are locked down by Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a great place for us. But, but as we're building this brand, because we have to be seen so unique and different, because our business relies entirely on our relationship with, our, with, our, with the independent business owners that 
basically choose to build their own business with products from you know from Excess, from other uh, Amway brands. Um, when I'm thinking about how we spend money on promotions and advertising and things like that, it all comes back to how will this support our our business partners, you know, the independent business owners that we work with. Um, and so I said to Doug, I just said, look, I love this. I love everything about it. But the big question for me is, I mean, this is the thing that you do for fun. This is your passion. This is this is your dream. Um, would you be open to having, you know, some of our top distributors come to this one of these events as an incentive, as a sales incentive? Because there's no other way to get to this. I mean, this is this is an incredible experience that would be fantastic for some of our for some some of our leaders. And he immediately said, "Yeah, that'd be great." Um, you know, for, I think for him, just like for me, it's look. These are people we have great relationships with. It's a family. It's not. It's not just business. It's really much closer than that. And so, uh, so that's why we sponsor these races. We have a ton of fun at them. And so, we spent a week at the last regatta of the year in Valencia. Uh, we had a group of uh, of our Japanese um, uh, business partners there and Korean business partners there who had. Uh, really broken through a lot of barriers in their business, created tremendous growth in our brand uh, over the last year um, to be there, and and we had a really great year, and um, and so, anyways, um, Doug unfortunately couldn't be there this year, which is a big component of why we like to sponsor these races because our ABOs love to spend time with the man who's the president of a ten billion dollar brand that they're tied to and, and connected with very personally. Um, not only watching him pursue his dreams and his passion, but then getting time on the dock and maybe getting time over a meal or, or some, some sundowner cocktails, um, you know, to really have a, have a personal conversation about the business and, and lives and, and where things are going and, and learn about sailing. So anyways, this year, Doug couldn't be there. Uh, his father, Rich DeVos, I did a podcast about Rich, um, died a few weeks before and, uh, obviously, um, that death was very disruptive in a lot of ways for uh, for Doug and his family and, and for our business owners. Um, it created a big hole in, in everybody's life. Um, it's part of the natural progression of life, but it's also, you know, when, when people go, it, it, uh, it leaves, a, leaves a hole that we need to fill and um, or need to, need to, you know, talk about. So anyways, Doug couldn't be there. And, um, and so we, we, we did it without him. It was still a great event. We had a great time. Um, but, uh, one of the key leaders that we work with, um, is a, as somebody I would like to talk about. So this is one of the people that I didn't get a chance to do an interview with. I'm still trying to figure out how to do a translated interview, if that's going to make sense on a podcast. But there's a, there's a man named, um, Kaoru Nakajima-san, uh, that is, has been really instrumental in the Amway business and the success of our own business at Excess. Uh, Nakajima-san is a, one I'd like to say he's amazingly humble and charismatic leader. He loves music, fashion, sports, and, and art. Um, we spent a lot of time working with him before we launched in Japan in 2011. And it, it was important for us at Excess that our Southern California lifestyle brand, which was born in Laguna Beach, would connect to the unique uh, Japanese tastes and culture. So when some of the older leaders in Japan... Uh, kind of opposed an energy drink, you know, in our health and beauty business. They're like, this isn't healthy, uh, even though we think it is pretty healthy compared to other energy drinks. Um, Nakajima-san supported excess even more, and he was really, really instrumental in not only helping us launch successfully, but helping helping us work with those other leaders to bring them on board eventually. 
Um, at one point in our work together, uh, you know, he's, as we were working through some of these challenges, he said to me, he said, Davido, uh, Davido is how you say David in Japan, <laughs> Davido, Davido, um, uh, don't worry, you can do it. Uh, we need to make our, make our business more stylish. I'll try to do this in Japanese, my favorite Japanese accent. Davido, don't worry, you can do it. We need to make our business more stylish. Excess, very stylish. Excess is good for Amway. And, you know, I lived in Japan before. I've, I, we've spent a lot of time there. It was so compelling to have somebody say that, to take the time. This is a man who has a lot of people pulling on him. Uh, for him to take the time and recognize that, you know, we were concerned about where we were headed and that he was convinced we would make this happen. And if he was convinced, then I was convinced because basically he makes things happen. And uh, so together, we not only had one of our, our top two or three uh, most successful launches with Nakajima-san support, but we also helped turn around a declining Japanese uh, Amway business. It had gone from $2 billion to a $1 billion in the 10 years prior to our launch. And it was a transformation uh, of culture that also helped bring in a whole new generation of young leaders. Um, so we had a we had a huge, you know, uh, together with all the work being done in Amway Japan, Excess really was a the tip of the spear in a way in helping to turn around and transform that business, that culture. And it was through that partnership with Nakajima-san that we were able to do that. But here's a couple other things you should know about Karu Nakajima. Um, one, he doesn't come from a business background. <laughs> I love this. That's why I believe in a liberal arts education. He came into our business as a music composer, which is a very unusual transition, especially in Japan. Also, you know, he suffered from polio as a child, and so he has an arm that isn't fully, uh, fully developed. And he loves to dress in, in this in really flamboyant um, fashion as a single man. You know, he loves Tom Brown, loves um, uh, um, Etro, and just some really uh, interesting designers that stand out in a very cool and hip way. Um, these are all things that tend to separate him from Japanese culture, where there is a tremendous pressure to fit in. You know, most people are really taught there to go to university, become a salary man, you know, have this career at a big company, and that will give you success, even though it will probably, you know, destroy your life. Um, and he just does not fit in and does not follow social norms, and he leads, he's used that to lead as an example. See, Nakajima-san had a mother who loved him deeply and helped him to learn to use his differences to his advantage. He's a talented tennis player. He actually hosts his own his own tournament. He's played with Roger Federer. Um, Elton John invites him to attend his birthday party every year. His friends um, and had musical performances for like people like Jennifer Lopez, Mariah Carey, Kenny G. Um, in fact, I took Nakajima-san and some of his team to the last Kobe Bryant basketball game that Kobe played at for the Lakers and Kenny G came with us and we ended up sitting next to each other and talking for a lot of the night and one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, he ended up inviting me to fly with him on his, uh, on his, uh, on his seaplane from, from, uh, uh, from the West coast back to Toronto, Canada, uh, the, the Toronto area where he, where he grew up. Um, but, but this is Nakajima-san. He has, I mean, just albums of, musicians and artists that he spends time with and that he connects with. And when he said he wanted to make the business more stylish, I think what, what he was talking about 
was that, you know, success in life isn't just about building a business. It's about creating a whole culture that's attractive, that brings new people in. Um, and so let me tell you a couple quick stories about Nakajima-san and how he lives what he preaches. Uh, first, to get started um, in our business, you have to do the work yourself. Um, somebody will help you. Your upline hopefully will help you. Uh, the per- maybe if, if, if it's not even the person that sponsored you, somebody upline from them. Uh, you can always go upline and find somebody if you, the person that sponsors you isn't going to help you, by the way. Um, but it's not easy. You have to retail. You have to sponsor to make your business work. And then you have to learn how to duplicate that, how to coach other people and help other people do the same thing. That transition from doing it to coaching it is a, is a huge, huge difficulty. A lot of people fall out in that part of our business. Um, and it's not easy when, you get, when you're getting started, but it becomes really fun as you figure it out and you, you build confidence and, and, and you realize, hey, look, we're all people. And uh, we're, all, we're all probably a little defensive the first time we meet somebody and you, somebody puts an offer on the table. But we all probably want to get ahead in life. We want some, and we want somebody to help us get there. We want a coach. We want a mentor. I think a lot of people are just a little skeptical, and, and, and they should be. And if you're willing to work through that with them and learn to ask questions and find out what they're looking for, then you have the opportunity to help other people recognize that they could build the lives they want too. And that becomes one of the most profound things you can do in your life. So... Um, Nakajima-san, you know, he's literally one of the highest, uh, he has one of the highest level businesses uh, associated with Amway. Uh, You know, he's what we call a double crown ambassador, which is on its own a very, very unique level. It's a long story behind that I won't get into, but um, he, he could quit. He could just hang it up and have money coming in you know, for the rest of his life, but he doesn't choose to do that. Um, he continues to retail and sponsor because he believes you can't preach it unless you're doing it yourself. And he sets a great example for what everyone in our business continues to do, need to do. And he shows them how much fun it can be to do that work. Um, I also noticed that when we come to large events where there's, you know, tens of thousands of, of, um, of people that want photos with him, uh, and, you know, he'll stop and take pictures for over an hour sometimes. And when his support staff ask if he wants to go, he often says, look, this is my job. This is my family. This is my job. This is my family. Such a powerful statement. It comes from the heart. It's who he is. And it demonstrates how much he loves who we are and what we do as a business and as a group, as a culture. Um, and so, yes, I do realize how, how fortunate I am to be able to travel this planet, to spend time with people who live their lives in fun and unique ways, doing productive things and progressing. Um, so from Valencia, we took the high-speed train, the Ave, to Madrid. That's where we did an excess party and a talk for a few thousand business owners in the Aguado business. Uh, you probably heard the interview I did with Miguel Aguado Jr. Uh, if you didn't, you can go back and listen to it. I won't, I won't re, re-go through that. But Sarah and I also, and by the way, I love the Aguados. They're some of our favorite people in the business. Another great family that has built not just a business, but a whole lifestyle and culture of inclusion, acceptance, um, and, and support, helping other people who want to move ahead in life get the things that they want. Uh, build not just, you know, not just make money, but really build a life, as, as M- Miguel talked about. Um, Sarah and I have also invested in a young entrepreneur we've known for a while, um, uh, Mercedes uh, Morales, a good friend of ours now, uh, who I met because she used to book our, our excess events when we were launching in Spain. And now our older son, who had moved to Madrid to teach English a year ago, um, 
is working with her on a consulting and, and agency business that's launched doing a lot with um, with uh, mixers, uh, some mix, a mixer brand called Aquamonaco, and uh, and some restaurants and things that we're involved with there. So really interesting people. Uh, we got to spend some time with them and. Uh, you know, work through some of the difficulties and struggles that they're in the middle of. It's never easy, and it certainly isn't easy for them. They're working their butts off. I think our older son uh, never realized how hard it was to start a business, and he's learning very quickly. Um, in fact, he and, and Mercedes have been in some very stressful times and uh, because they have to hit some milestones and benchmarks in order for us to continue to uh, you know, support them with with the investment that's required. And uh, and there are no excuses. You know, when you, when you own the company... Uh, Nobody cares why. The only question is, do we get it done or not? And um, and right now they're in the middle of trying to figure it out, and we're in the middle of trying to help them do that. And there's a, you know there's been a lot of they had a lot of anxiety uh, and, and going on. Um, and I'd like to make a little segue here because it's pretty easy to talk about success after the fact, and I feel like sometimes maybe it, it sounds that way. But the work is is always incredibly hard, stressful, and not always so fun. Um, so one of the recurring questions that I've been getting on this pod, you know, from this podcast is, what do, I, what do I do about the anxiety, the frustration, and the fear? I get that all the time. I'm getting lots and lots of messages, um, and it keeps coming, keeps coming up. I'm like, do people listen to this podcast? Because <laughs> I feel like I talk about it a lot. Um, but both with Skylar and Mercedes, who are really operating under maximum stress at this point, um, I've had conversations with both of them about how hard it is, you know, not just casual conversations, but emotional, teary, painful conversations. If you listen to Miguel Aguado's interview, he talks about the importance of perseverance, you know, the determination and community when things seem impossible. As awful, you know, he went through bankruptcy, alcoholism, um, you know, moved to foreign countries, uh, really went through a lot of it. And he said, you know, I think he... He said he wasn't really fearful because he was just embracing the adventure of it. But he's definitely been through a tremendous amount of stress and pressure. Um, and so, you know, some of us maybe describe fear differently. But um, but I think it's important that you have people you can talk to, that you can get it out, and that you can realize that it's going to be okay. You know, maybe maybe there's, there's bad things that will happen, but, you, you know, well, I don't know where people are, but in, typically no one's going to kill you. Um, and, and, and it's important that even when the world feels like it's falling apart, you breathe. That's why I think meditation is so important, that even if you can't make it better, even if, even if, uh, even if it's all going to fall apart, it's going to be okay. You, know, you can separate yourself from that. You, your ego, which may be tied up in all that, isn't you at, this, at the core of who you are. And um, hard work is always the hard work. But I can tell you that if you persevere until you figure out what the next step is, you probably won't have changed a thing, even if it's a total failure. You know, sometimes the next step is bankruptcy. Um, sometimes it's walking away without burning bridges. Sometimes it's just scraping through, and sometimes it's a, it's a successful leap forward or, or maybe even an exit. Um, I'm not saying that you always have to win, uh, but you have to deliberately persevere if you want to own that part of the story in your life. Uh, I firmly believe that we learn more from our failures than our successes, but we have to actually deliberately push to the point where we do fail. And when we fail, we, we can't ignore it. We have to do an autopsy and learn why we failed so that we don't keep making the same mistakes. Um, from Madrid, we traveled to Paris to see our younger son, Willem. He's in his fourth year at American University Paris. Um, 
we do believe in the value of a liberal arts education. I know some people who are entrepreneurs think, you know, university educations are too expensive or not that valuable. I disagree. Um, I would never get an education to try and make money. I think that's kind of foolish. But, um, um, but we really believe in liberal arts education, a broad-based education. We believe in traveling and living abroad, learning foreign languages, really immersing yourself in another culture, learning how other people live so that you can actually see yourself a little bit more clearly. You know, it's not until you learn a second or third language that you start to understand your first language because you have to break down another language to understand it where you intuitively kind of are immersed in a language that you were born into in your first language. And it's the same thing with your culture, with yourself, with everything. You've got to remove yourself from the life you were born into in order to see it, I think, more clearly, which is why we really believe in traveling and living abroad and, and seeing the world through other people's eyes, through empathy, empathy and, and inclusion. So um, Willem had an interesting breakthrough last year that I'd also like to talk about. I think it's okay to talk about these things. The boys will tell, <laughs> tell me later if it's not. I won't get too deeply personal. But, you know, last year, um, so a year ago, he was getting ready to go back to school. And uh, he was starting his third year and was majoring in international business with a minor in art history. Maybe it was mid-year. Um, and by the way, I think art history is a great thing to study in Paris, which is a city filled and defined, you know, filled with and defined by art. Um, but Willem had a poor grade in uh, financial accounting <laughs> in his international business major. So we were discussing that result. Um, I like to say, look, man, these educations aren't cheap. And I expect that you're going to work hard. You can have fun, play hard, fine. But I expect that you're going to get you know, decent grades because there's no reason to invest this kind of money if, you know, if you're not going to put in the effort. And, um, and they're smart enough to, to get the grades. Uh, so we were having this conversation about a bad grade he had gotten. And he got a little emotional and said he wasn't really passionate about his international business degree. He didn't love it. And I asked him, you know, I was like, so why are you studying it? Um, and he said, because he thought I wanted him to study business. And I was, I was kind of blown away. You know, as a parent, you don't always know what you're projecting or what your kids are reading into you. And sometimes they're assuming something that you never intended. And this is one of those cases. I just said, look, I never suggested you study business. Um, frankly, I don't know why someone would study business for an undergraduate degree. Uh, if you want to learn business, be in business. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I learned it. Um, and, and I think it's actually the best way to learn business. Uh, you don't learn business in books or classrooms. You learn it by experience. I, I always thought a business degree in college, and forgive me if you were, were a business major, was kind of a waste of time. Like, yeah, take some classes, you know, dip your toe in the water there. But man, you want to be in business? Like, you really want to be in business, be an entrepreneur. That's where you're going to learn it all. Start something. Do your own books. Set up your own banking. Get your own loans. You know, raise money. Build a product. Figure out how to sell it and market it. You do all that, you're in business. You got a degree. You got a degree from the School of Hard Knocks, and you got a degree from the School of Hustle, which is the best place to get a degree. So... um you know, if you want to be in business, but I don't think, I don't think you go to school to be in business. I think you go to school because you want to, you want to, you know, expose yourself to a wide range of options. Willem switched his major to art history. I mean, that was like an instant decision for us. We're like, dude, why are you waiting? Like art history, you're in Paris, switch to art history. What a great thing to study. And he's always loved, he's done summer internships and, and programs. You know, he's gone to uh, Pratt, which is a great uh, design school in Brooklyn, and done summer programs in, in how to do branding. Um, he's gone to the New School in Manhattan. He's and studied studied art and design. He's um, you know he's done internships 
at some great design firm uh, companies. And, you know, it's what he loves. He wants to study art history because he wants to understand where all that art comes from, right? So what's, what's the power of these ideas? What's the origin of them? So he switched his major to art history, and he's never been happier. Um, he's never had better grades or more deeply immersed in his studies. I mean, he is, he is passionately excited about what he's studying, and he has access to all of the art history that they're talking about. You know, whether it's not, if it's not in Paris, it's in Amsterdam or Rome or, or someplace else, and, you know, much of it's throughout Europe, especially when you're talking about the, you know, Western history of art. Um, but, but I think that's what an education's for. It's to help you find that, that hedgehog concept that Jim Collins talks about. You know, the, the thing you are passionate about that you can be best in the world at and earn a living. That's also why I love liberal arts. It's, it's broad enough. You have to take enough different things from enough different disciplines to give you a chance at, to start discovering it. I just, I just can't imagine walking out of high school into college and saying, yep, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It's crazy to me. Crazy. I, I, you can do that, but I don't think it's going to make you uh, happy. I don't think it's going to allow you to create the life that you want to have. Um, at least I haven't seen it. I've seen people get good jobs and get decent careers out of it, but I've never seen people passionately living their lives saying, I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, straight out of high school. I mean, at least very, very few people. They're the, the lucky ones who know that. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it's it was just a, a great time, a great experience with our sons. Um, not easy. I mean, they're definitely working hard, uh, but it was, it was fun to see them. And then one of the people we met with in Paris was a guy named Pierre, who, um, who owns a bar, the WOS bar, which is the only Packer bar in Paris, which is how we met him. But he's also a young entrepreneur. Um, and he started a, a company recently, uh, Blooming Gems, distributing remarkable imported drinks uh, to France. And then he you know, distributes and sells them around France. Um, he's been struggling with how to both run his bar, where people come into that bar to see him and hang out with him and talk to him. He's the, he's the face of that bar. Um, and be outside selling these these uh, fancy liquors that he and, and other drinks that he imports. Um, so you know we, we talked a lot about that. Uh, he's got a new business plan. Um, he actually wants to ultimately build a distillery on his on his ancestral family farm uh, in Burgundy. Really interesting stuff going on. But I just love sitting down and talking through the challenges with young entrepreneurs. Talking through. Um, workshopping with them, where they're headed, what they're doing, staying in touch, investing sometimes. But it's just, it's the excitement. It keeps me young. It keeps me interested in it. And it exposes us when we're in these different countries to the different cultures and, and the ways you work and build brands, build, build a cultural identity in, in that culture. It's really fascinating. Um, uh, and of course, the best part of being in Spain and France was being there with my wife, Sarah. I don't get to travel with her all the time. And so, you know, at this stage in my work and our life together, we end up apart a lot. Um, so in one way, it keeps our life together more precious when we, when we do get together. But, um, and we also try and do like an, a handful of epic trips together each year. So, you know, obviously seeing our boys in their home cities and, and being uh, in Europe together is among our favorite things to do. So it's just absolutely fantastic to be on this trip, doing this work, doing it with my wife rather than apart from her. Um, it just makes it even more fun and exciting. It also happened to be Fashion Week in Paris. Um, we were there and we were staying in the Vendome, which is, um, you know, kind of right in the, in the center of the city. Uh, we were wandering, the, you know, the streets and just watching people. It was kind of off the charts with models and crazy fashion everywhere. 
Um, in fact, one night we were going to go see exhibits at the Palais de Tokyo, uh, which is this really cool museum, um, kind of in the center or off the center a little bit uh, across the river from the eighth. Uh, across the river from the Eiffel Tower, I should say. And we ended up uh, at an improvised fashion live art show and exhibit that had uh, this temporarily exte- in, uh, installed bar and cafe area in a courtyard around the Palais de Tokyo. And um, it was sponsored by this uh, gin brand. And it was, just, it was just great to be in the middle of all this energy and people trying to get out there and put out their brand and their vibe. And you know, fashion week. It's just, there's so much excitement going on. It was, it was fantastic. We had a great time. And then the night before I left for Moscow with, you know, all these people, all these parties. And of course, you know, we kind of end up in the middle of it somehow getting invited into some things. Um, we had dinner near our son's apartment, which is in the eighth arrondissement, which is, and by the way, my French is terrible, but Paris is divided up into different sections, different arrondissements. And, uh, he lives in the eighth near the Eiffel tower. Uh, so, we ended up at this miniature replica of a late 70s disco, this killer little club called Andy Walloo's. And we stayed there until the wee hours of the morning. Um, by the way, if you're in Paris, go to Andy Walloo's. It is awesome. If, well, if you like to party. Uh, but it is it is absolutely crazy. It's this little, like, vintage 70s, uh, you know, reinvented disco. And, uh, you know, we ended up sort of... Uh, eating and drinking our way through Spain and Paris together. And then, you know, I had to take off in the morning really early for a flight to Moscow, which, by the way, you know, I don't recommend pouring yourself onto a plane with a, the start of a hangover as you're heading into Russia where drinking isn't a casual pastime. <laughs> it wasn't the wisest of moves. But from Paris, I had business in Moscow with Amway. And so there, um, uh, we have an amazing partnership with the team there, the affiliates there that put together a social a social fest, a social media event. Um, Irina Menchnikova, Katya Orlenkova, and the rest of the team there did a spectacular job with the social media workshop um, where I was one of the featured speakers. And, uh, and, and we could really um, help them uh, with their business owners in that market who are trying to do a lot more with social media content and strategies. Um, so, you know, with social media content's king, and they're learning how to create their own uh, social media content, their own personal lifestyle brands, you know, their own uh, th- with their own businesses, so that they're worth followings, and they have integrated product offerings, and social selling isn't something they're pushing, it's an outcome of just great relationships that they're building via social media. Um, I mean, look, like like any companies that are serious about retail and consumer brands, Amway is in the process of discovering how... You know, how our model of partnering with independent business owners, um, how, how we can help them drive re- revenue through killer social media content and easier online experiences than we have today. Um, you know, the funny thing is Excess has been doing this for a long time. Uh, we've almost been entirely building our brand via social media since 2008. Um, over 90% of our daily communications with consumers and business owners happens on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Line if you're in Japan, and WeChat if you're in China. It's great to be able to work together um, with business owners to figure out how to make quantum leaps in social content, how to bring them along to work together with us so that we're supporting them and what they're trying to do, and it's building our brands and businesses together. Um, so Irina and her husband Oleg, who was a former KGB officer in Kazakhstan, <laughs> 
uh, after this social social fest, invited me to their dasha, uh, their cottage outside Moscow. So I like to point out that their cottage is nicer than most homes, <laughs> especially in Moscow. And um, and we had a great time. You know, we were uh, drinking a little bit and and singing songs outside by their campfire, which, by the way, uh, late September in Moscow feels like. Uh, dead of winter in California. Uh, it was it was quite chilly, but I enjoyed it very much. And um, we just had a great time. We went to, when I first got there, we went to these this really cool speakeasy club in Moscow. The next night we went out to their dacha and, you know, did singing and drinking. And then um, we just had a, had a great time. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then, then on the way out, we they kept me up all night doing karaoke before they poured me on another plane to Amsterdam to see, to see a buddy of mine. Um, but, you know, I am so excited about Irina and the way she's been investing her life and, and leading uh, the Amway business in Russia and Kazakhstan. In fact, we had this great conversation about um, the opportunities that she's developed. One, she's created a huge, uh, growing, fast-growing business in Kazakhstan that that was um, that people scoffed at when she proposed it. But she has a lot of deep experience in Kazakhstan and the, and the other stands. And she's uncovered even bigger opportunities for us now in Mongolia and Kyrgyzstan and uh, Uzbekistan and and a bunch of the stands that are basically, you know, you basically just go south from from Kazakhstan down to India, and you can connect the dots. So. Just a fantastic business leader, one of our more entrepreneurial business leaders in the Amway business. She actually works for for Amway Russia as a vice president. But uh, it was just a fascinating conversation. She's another person I want to interview uh, at some point in the near future. And then um, from Moscow, I had to travel to the Philippines, um, but via Amsterdam. So one of the, my good friends from high school, Jeff Prinz, lives in Amsterdam. Uh, he he actually chased a beautiful classmate. Uh, who was Dutch, from Calvin College, uh, back to the Netherlands, back to Amsterdam, and he stayed. He never looked back. Um, I'm sure we will get him on a future podcast. I just, I literally had, you know, a few hours with him uh, to, to have lunch and have some other conversations. In fact, he, um, he's been a program manager and director at one of the largest and most cutting-edge foundations, the Doan Foundation in the Netherlands. Um, and he's currently at the IKEA Foundation uh, in Sweden, but still lives in Amsterdam. And he's invested and developed some of the most uh, groundbreaking environmental projects. In fact, some of them we may even use today, uh, like that the Philips light bulb that uh, lasts you know years. And um, I, f- I forget what they call it. The um, you know one that looks like those little tubes that are that are twisted around. I mean, he invested in that. They've, he just he's been involved in some really incredible things. Um, really cutting edge environmental projects. And so anyways, when, when he says he has somebody that he wants me to meet that we should talk to, it's usually somebody really interesting. Could be, could be anybody from Bill McDonough, the, one of the founders of Cradle to Cradle, could be Al Gore, could be Elon Musk, could be, could be almost anybody. Um, so this time he said he wanted, wanted me to meet a guy named Jan Sixt. I'm sorry, Jan Six. So the first name is Jan, last name S-I-X, just like the, the number six. And, um, he said, yeah, we should have lunch with Jan Six. I was like, yeah, it sounds great. Who's Jan Six? <laughs> and he sent me a New York Times article um, about Jan, uh, who comes from an old Amsterdam family. Um, been, they've been there for, you know, dozens of generations or at least 11 generations. Um, his family was merchants, were merchants originally, burgermasters, which means, you know, the, the, the people who ran the city, the, 
kind of like the mayor or city council member, but obviously a lot more hands-on control back, you know, in the 15 and 1600s. Um, and that, among other things, there's a famous portrait of one of his great-great-grandfathers, you know, more than 11 generations ago that their family foundation still owns. So Jan is known, um, though not because of his family or because of that, uh, He's known because he's developed an obsession with dealing art in a very particular way. He's obsessed with finding original Rembrandt oil paintings, restoring them, and then selling them. Um, he also has original etchings from Rembrandt. He has an assorted, uh, wildly interesting set of artifacts from, from Amsterdam. And he collects other art, too. Um, but his Rembrandts, you know, Rembrandt is... If you find a Rembrandt oil, they're they're nearly priceless. And so, um, anyways, he's become very, very good at that. And, and when he finds them, by the way, it's not like you just find it. Usually, um, he has to restore them uh, because they've, um, you know, people have painted over them. And I'll get into that in a second. But um, we spent a couple of hours at this restaurant called The Duchess uh, in Amsterdam at the W Hotel Uh just talking about how he finds these priceless pieces of art. It's like treasure hunting, how he peels back the layers of paint and debris on them to discover the original painting. Often they've been painted over um, or cut into smaller canvases. Um, sometimes there's like large, you know, huge pieces that over time between wars and changes in family, um, they get cut up and, and re, 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 uh, rehung effectively, you know, re, um, put on new frames, stretched on new frames and sold as individual portraits and whatnot. So, um, we went to his private gallery. It's on the, on the canal rings. So it's one of the old homes on the canal rings. And if you haven't been to Amsterdam, unbelievable place, uh, more art museums per square foot than any city in Europe, an amazing walking city, tons of small shops and restaurants. I mean, just unbelievably fun place to go. But, um, and uh, we, so we went to his private gallery where he showed me his library. Um, I mean, he has documented millions, uh, over a million photos of, of you know, the, the detail of Rembrandt images, paintings, etchings, so that when he is out hunting, he can discover them through tens of thousands of hours of, of, of study and, and, you know, kind of perfecting what makes a Rembrandt a Rembrandt and what doesn't make a Rembrandt a Rembrandt. Um, so we went through a lot of interesting parts of his collection and, and he showed us the second Rembrandt that he had just found. Um, well, I mean that he had recently acquired, I should say he'd found it about four years ago, but he, it takes a while to acquire them. In fact, he found it in Italy and it took him two years just to get it out of Italy. Um, and uh, it was funny because that day, Le Figaro, the French news, the national French news newspaper, had just done a story on the fact that he found his second Rembrandt. So um, the New York Times had done an article a couple of years ago about him finding and selling his first Rembrandt, or you know, he's in the process of selling that now. Le, Le Figaro was just covering the fact that he had found his second Rembrandt, which is incredibly. I mean, nobody does this. This is really rare air in terms of art collecting. And, um, and then I, he told us that Russell Shorto, who's an author, author I love, who wrote uh, City at the Center of the World about New Amsterdam, which later became New York, a bunch of other uh, articles and, and another book on, on the Dutch-American connection. Um, Russell Shorto is doing an in-depth piece on him for the New York Times right now, which is really fascinating, getting into his, uh, the background of how he finds these pieces, you know, how he does this treasure hunting in the art world. So um, 
I'll share that article when it comes out. The point is that that it takes Jan years. You know, it took him two decades to find these two pieces. In the process, he's found a lot of other really cool art and artifacts. Um, but but he has this amazing collection of information that allows him to do this as cataloged. Um, probably one of the largest catalogs of, ex- of existing known data on where Rembrandts are, who owns them, how they're being auctioned, etc. He's put, you know, literally tens of thousands of hours into knowing exactly why a painting could be a Rembrandt, why it might not be, and when there might be confusing overlayers of added characters, clothings, and scenes on Rembrandt. You know, during the 1600s, when Rembrandt was painting, the Protestant Reformation um, was being fought across Europe. You know, people were saying, hey, maybe there's another way to think about Christianity. Maybe, um, you know, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox had already split. And then Martin Luther, you know, started the split from Rome. And um, so the funny thing is Rembrandt had family on, on both sides of, you know, this divide. And, uh, and he kind of favored the deconstructed church at the time, the church that was getting, um, you know, broken apart and rebuilt by the Protestants. He was more interested in the spirituality of inclusive love and grace that the Protestant Reformation preached um, versus the political, political control, exclusion, and coerced papal doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, some of you may be, you know, Roman Catholics who might say, yeah, but it's the one true church and, and you know, all those things. That's great. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just telling you, Rembrandt, uh, paint, start, when he started painting the parables and other, other um, religious scenes in a modern context in his time, uh, he favored the doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, and he subtly included them in those, in those, uh, in those scenes. Um, so what, what's, what's, what happened is, um, as he painted these, people would sometimes later, and later, you know, later owners would paint over some of the elements that they didn't like if they were Roman Catholic or if they came from a different perspective. And so they would have somebody you know, maybe clothe a character, or if there were three apostles arguing in this current painting he has, they would paint one priest over it who represents the unified vision of the Roman Catholic Church versus the disruption of the of the Protestant agenda at the time. Um, I, I think what the thing that impressed me with all this, when you when you learn how how you have to peel back these layers to get to the original painting, to get to the true idea that Rembrandt was painting, is it really reminded me of Paul Tillich, who's a famous theologian from the middle 1900s, who early early to the middle 1900s, who talked about God beyond God, um, or what's you know what I like to talk about, you know, or you maybe you've heard Rob Bell or Pete Holmes or, or Peter Rollins talk about getting to the to the real thing, the thing behind all of our descriptions of God that are tied up in culture, language, place, metaphor, analogy, and history. Um, you know, I think there was a I think there was a reason that when Moses first met God in the burning bush and asked his name, God gave him an unpronounceable, unspellable name, four letters in English. You know, as I didn't give it to him in English, but you know, as it's spelled in English. Y H W H. You know, it's it's written out as Yahweh or Jehovah or, or other translations. Um, but I think God, that's for the very same reason that Jesus, when he came to earth, only spoke in parables when asked specific questions. Uh, if you could assume for a second with me, I mean, it's okay if you don't like God or you're, you're an atheist or agnostic. That's fine. But if you can assume with me for a second that that was actually God talking to Moses, or God did actually walk among us as Jesus. Um, 
I think what, what God's trying to say there is that anything that is that powerful, we will, we will turn into a graven image and we will, we will turn into an idol. So if he makes it unspeakable, or if he says, don't make any graven images, because the second you try and carve me, you're going to worship the piece of wood. You're going you're gonna to worship the thing in front of you, not the thing behind the thing. We, we're trying to cut these barriers out, I think is effectively what, what God was saying. Um, let's not even put a name on it. Let's just, let's just get to the thing itself. Let's focus on that. And it's like, it's like, I think it's like what Miguel Aguado was talking about in his interview, um, where he described that on his spiritual path, maybe it needs to be anonymous to retain its authentic truth and not become a man-made pile of garbage that's keeping us away from the thing behind it all. Yes, I think religion can be helpful when it's, when it's not trying to separate us from God, when it's not trying to be the thing, when it's not trying to dictate, when it's not trying to control. But that is very, very hard to maintain. Um, so I had a great time with Jan Six. I want to do an interview with him. I want to do an interview with Jeff. I want to get those out. We will make it happen. Um, I'll try and get there in the next six months and, 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 and get that going. But um, from Amsterdam, I had to go to the Philippines to work with our young and growing business partners at a small island in the south, southern Philippines called Bahal. I'm probably saying this wrong, but I, I believe it's called Bahal. Bahal is sandwiched in between Cebu and Davao, if you know where that is. It's kind of southern Philippines. Um, Davao is at the far southern tip and Cebu is kind of a, a south central, you might say. Um, it's a tropical paradise where Stephanie Badur, who works uh, for the Excess brand, leads global excess events and strategies, has been working with Amway Philippines to organize a new type of incentive event for younger leaders at earlier stages of success in our business. Um, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit because I think it's, it's, even if you're not in our business, I think it's helpful to think about breaking down the process of the journey you're on and looking at the process from where is it working and where is it falling apart. One of our challenges as a large global, you know, global brand with millions of business owners is that we don't always meet our younger leaders and our newer leaders until they've navigated some of the hardest transitions in our business. You know, when a business owner starts, they're incentivized purely by retail profits they make and the consolidated volume they can organize via people they sponsor as other new business owners in in their group. We we call that group volume. Uh, each end of, just I'm going to give you a quick summary. Each business owner here makes the same money at the same volume level. It's a it's a tiered level. So if you do a smaller level, you get a smaller percentage. You, you do a bigger amount of volume, you make a bigger percentage. Um, and, and everyone has exactly the same opportunity. So if you have a sponsor who doesn't do much, but you build a big, you know, very large business, the group volume bonuses will largely pass to you. Your, your sponsor doesn't make a ton of money off that. They have to actually help some other people do that, do the same thing in order to, to capitalize on that. Um, and so, um, you know, we lose a lot of people through the normal anxiety, frustration, lack of support, lack of knowledge, appropriate training, and just general perseverance about, you know, one, if they make it past the start where they're figure out how to do some retail and how to sponsor, the second big gap we have is when they have to make this transition from doing the work all themselves to sponsoring other people, coaching other people, mentoring other people, and really building a team. And, um, and so what we're trying to do right now is put more incentives and more, um, more up, you know, recognize more people and have more of a relationship with people at those mid-tier levels where they're making that transition. 
And so um, one of the things we're doing is we're putting together smaller, more dynamic and edgy incentive trips at that mid-level for people who are making you know, we're making consistent growth, even though it's not big. We're just we're saying, hey, look, you're doing it. You're doing the necessary steps to get to these other big milestones in our business. Um, so we threw a beach party with branded activities on this killer little island, this kind of remote island in the Philippines, Bahol, Bahal, I think it's called. Um, we had some sporting team events, some individual contests, some some dance contests, and then we had a blowout DJ party at the end that featured signature excess cocktails. So we do all these fun events on the beach, and then as it gets dark, we bring out the DJ, and it becomes a dance party, and we recognize people who've done different things. It's just a ton of fun. Yes, it's work, but yes, it's also a lot of play. And and I've just these kinds of events are the ones I live for. Not only because they're a lot of fun, but because it's these young emerging leaders who are so excited, who are just going through the fire, who who are struggling and have fear and anxiety when they finally get to this place, even though maybe they haven't had huge success. It's we're celebrating, we're recognizing, we're saying you can do it, you can go the next step. You know, I don't want to just celebrate somebody when they finish a marathon. I want to help them at the big at the big bonk areas, you know, the mile mile 12, mile 15, mile 18. Let's let's help people as they're going through those stages where a lot of people just tend to quit. Um, we had a great time there. There's a great team with Amway Philippines. I can't say enough good things about how well that worked. And then from the Philippines, I'd been planning to travel to Bangkok to do a very large event with about 40,000 people. Um, and then I had scheduled kind of a layover at a friend. A friend of mine in, from Laguna has a compound in Bali. So I was just going to spend like four or five days in Bali with them and then head to my next event in Bangkok. Um, my friend, I should just talk about that a little bit. Um, so my buddy, Steve Titus, and his wife, Jen Titus, have this incredible compound in Changu, which is uh, one of the hipper towns, probably the hippest town in, in Bali right now, which is in Indonesia. And uh, Steve and Jen have invited Sarah and I to travel to some really cool parts of the world together. I'll get Steve on this podcast. He's a lot of fun to talk with. We always have a ton of fun in Laguna. We, you know, he's a, he was a professional snowboarder. He's a great surfer. Great, great motocross rider. And um, uh, Jennifer's a film actor. And she can't always travel. So Steve was going on this trip by himself. I was going to meet him there. And we and I ended up doing that. We ended up hanging out for a few days. Uh, but Steve was going to Bali for this combined motocross and surf event that a brand called Deus Ex Machina or Deus Ex Machina, some people say, um, that they do every year. It's a brand that started in Bali. They have a Bali, what they call a Bali temple. And it's this temple dedicated to fun where they make these incre- insane, you can look them up, Deus Ex, Mach- Deus Ex Machina is probably the easiest way to think about it. But um, they make these custom cafe racers and motorbikes that are just souped up and super tricked out. Plus they shape vintage modern surf craft that you know, look vintage but surf really well. They have killer clothes. It's just an insanely cool brand that I love. And they do this combo moto uh, surf event that happens over a weekend. That's going to happen. This it was supposed to happen this coming weekend, but then the International Monetary Fund came into town, so it kind of killed their event because all the all the police and military in Bali had to go protect the the IMF, and so they wouldn't allow anybody that needed police at their events to have events for the weekend. But um, anyway, Steve was going to be there. I thought it'd be rad to participate in it with him. Uh, I'm not the best motocross rider, but you know I'll give it a shot. And uh, so. The funny thing was my participation in this Thailand event got canceled and 
Sarah, my wife's birthday, was literally midway between the Philippines and and Bangkok. So I was going to miss it. I couldn't fly home and fly back for it. And we, you know, we've been doing this for, we've been together for 25 years. We just push birthdays and anniversaries and things to other dates that we can, when we, when we can be together and celebrate it. And, and that works really well for us. We love each other. And, that, you know, look, that that's not high stress for us anymore. Um, so anyways, what I thought I would do at that point when my Bangkok event got canceled is I just head to Bali and then I'd, I'd head home. Um, I thought I'd just hang out with Steve for a couple of days and, and just tighten up the trip. But this is this is the beauty of a global business. Um, I had forgotten <laughs> that my team had to cancel my support for a Japanese group of business owners who were celebrating their success and growth in 2018. And they're having this uh, success event um, in Bali together. So when I landed in Bali, I noticed on Facebook that one of the most successful distributors and one of my really good friend of mine from Japan, uh, uh, Mori. Morihiko Kitakan, we call him Kitakan-san, um, Kitakon-san was in Bali and it reminded me that he was doing these events. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm here, he's here, and he's going to be having these events. So I quickly coordinated with another standout vice president at Amway, a really good friend of mine. She's the head of sales in Japan, um, Melody Knockley, who was just flying in because I wasn't going to be there. <laughs> so she was going to go and, and represent Amway at this event, at these series of dinners and parties. Um, and we created an epic surprise dinner with Kitakon-san and his top leaders. And then we blew up his white party. It was, uh, it was at this world-class club called Coup d'etat and Legion the following night. So anyways, Kitakon and his team were so touched by our surprise uh, that, that I showed up when I didn't think I could have, um, that they vowed to drive really dramatic new growth in 2019. And sometimes, I guess the moral here is, you know, sometimes canceling one trip, if you're just open and flexible and you just kind of let things happen and pay attention, um, bigger opportunities occur where we should be applying our time. You know, if we're aware, paying attention and we're flexible and, and we're ready to adapt. So, um, I mean, we had a great time by the way with Kitakon-san and his group. He was super enthusiastic. They, we just did a party for them at my house and some of his top leaders this spring. So it was really great to be able to reconnect with him and see how they did through the summer months and, and kind of, re-energize them going into the end of the year. Um, but the last story on this journey, because um, I just got home today, actually just flew back from, from Bali today. The last story about this journey is about another character um, who showed up with Steve on this trip. Uh, you know, Steve showed up, he told me he was going to be bringing a friend and he told me that his friend was in, in the beverage business and uh, and actually had um, had a beverage company of his own, and I was I was curious. I'm like, really? Like, what's his, you know, what's his company? And um, and he said, well, it's this company called Suja, and uh, it's this guy named Eric Ethans who who founded it. It's a younger guy than me, about ten years younger than me. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'd love to meet him. He surfs. He snowboards. Uh, he's from Southern California. Lives in an in inclined village in Nevada and around Lake Tahoe now, but. Um, you know, it was it was the first night, and uh, we were um, we were in Changu. I met up with them after the, my last uh, event with Kitakon San, and then um, we were leaving this bar called Old Man's, and literally, um, he, uh, Eric wiped out three times on a moped just trying to leave, and we're like, "Dude, what what's going on?" 
and he had seen a guy spin out his moped, like spin a moped. We're all riding, and when we're in Changu, we ride like mopeds or motorcycles around because it's all tight streets and packed traffic. So if you've ever been to Indonesia, it's like schooling fish. You know, cars don't work that well. You really need a, a bike. So anyways, so we were coming out of there, and he wipes out three times. He goes, yeah, I was trying to do this whip it with my moped. And we're like, dude, like, who is this guy? He's insane. And uh, and that kind of started the fun. We had a, a few days together. Um, and I wanted to talk about Eric. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to talk about Eric because, by the way, he's on uh, Instagram. You can follow him at uh, one lucky guy on Instagram. Just one lucky guy. Uh, but, one of, you know, he's a great surfer. He's been a boatman for um, some of the surf resorts. And he decided to pick up a new sport at 35. He decided to pick up foil, foil boarding, which is riding a hydroplaning surfboard, which is incredibly hard. Um, he's been doing it behind boats on Lake Tahoe, and he literally took it out um, on a mellower wave earlier in the morning. And then later that afternoon, we were at this club on the beach enjoying ourselves. And he's like, dude, and there's, we're in front of this pumping, like barreling wave that's not easy to ride. And, you know, he could ride a surfboard easy enough. He's like, yeah, I'm going to take out my foil on that. And we're like, Steve was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Because it literally, it's like having a huge, you know, it's, you've got the board and you've got this hydrofoil, which is, looks like kind of a big hatchet or axe stuck to the bottom of your board. Like if that thing hits you, it could take your head off. So he's like, nope, I'm going to go out there. And he, I mean, you know, took a beating out there on this thing, um, Got into a couple, but really took a beating trying to get in these really steep barreling waves on a, on a foil board. And then when he came back in, he was like, oh, that was terrible. It was awful. And I was like, I was like, Eric, are you kidding me? You just went out and tried to surf a barrel on that thing. We're just happy you're still alive. I mean, that was intense. Um, he's just that kind of guy. And, um, you know, he's always progressing, always charging forward, always trying to do new things. And then uh, yesterday, my, our last day in Bali, he's like, hey, let's go up to Uluwatu, my favorite wave, one of his favorite waves there. It's just a big, long left that comes down this reef for, you know, it feels like over a mile. I'm not sure exactly how long it is from temples all the way down to the cave. And he rented a, uh, a villa at Uluwatu Surf Villas, these insane villas, because he knows the owner. He used to work for him at a surf resort that the guy owns. And um, so he, uh, he used to work at Uluwatu Surf Villas, actually. So he gets this villa, so this killer villa, and there's a private access point, these stairs that are carved into the rock. You can see them on my uh, Facebook or Instagram pages at David58 or, or David Vanderveen if you want to look it up there. But um, you, I took a lot of photos of going down this cliff face on these hand-carved stairs, and you, know, you get to paddle out right at the top of the point rather than have to paddle all the way up there. It was absolutely insane. We had a great day with him. One of his friends, uh, Daniela, came over. Um, and we just, you know, we just had one of the best days ever um, through random connections because I decided to do a layup for a few days in Bali and you end up meeting just these fantastic people who are progressing in life and will take you along if you're willing to, to be a part of it. So that's what I did the last three weeks. That was my, my journey around the world. I started in Europe, went to Asia and ended up back home here in Laguna. And um, I just want to encourage you. That whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, no matter how hard it is, persevere, stick with it. Send me a message. Talk to me about it. I'd be happy to talk to you and walk you through workshop issues you're in the middle of. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a perfect outcome. Maybe you'll have a failure. Maybe it won't be a success. But that's okay, too. It's all right to fail. Failure is your friend. Sometimes we just have to get through it to figure out what the next step is so we can be more successful at the things we're supposed to be doing with our life. 
Thank you very much for listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is interactive. I do want your feedback. You can reach me at um, just DM me, David, D-A-V-E-E-D, 58 on Instagram is probably the easiest way. Uh, you can also try and send me emails, um, David at kickaspirational.com, or you can send messages to the Kick Aspirational Instagram account, which is Kick Aspirational. <laughs> and uh, I would love to get your feedback. Thank you for listening. Be Kick Aspirational.